0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. We're at a milestone this week, people. 200 episodes. I can't believe we're at 200 episodes. Uh, This whole thing started on a lark. I was in an elevator right here at ABC News headquarters in New York City a couple years ago, and one of my friends, longtime colleague Lauren Efron, she got onto the elevator, and I said to her, "Do we do podcasts here at ABC News?" She works in the in digital, which I thought maybe had something to do with the podcast uh, division. Which, of course, it doesn't. The radio folks do the podcasts anyway. The answer was we at that point we really didn't have a podcast. But Lauren is such a high energy person that she. A couple days later, she organized a meeting with some folks from the digital department and the radio world, and they were in my office, and everybody was like, yeah, let's uh, let's try doing a podcast. And so a couple weeks later, we, we had a podcast. I interviewed the Dalai Lama. I had a pre-scheduled interview with the Dalai Lama. We dumped that into the podcast feed, and then I set something up with um, Rivers Cuomo from Weezer. Who's a friend of a friend, and um, and boom, I, we launched the podcast with those two, and every week since then, we've been somehow wrangling guests into the studio to sit and talk to me about meditation, and it has been amazing. I've learned an extraordinary amount, and I continue to learn from all of you. As some of you may know, we have this amazing group of podcast insiders, hundreds of people who give us feedback every week, and uh, so I'm, you know, continually trying to up my game. And, uh, yeah, this has been an incredible run. And to mark the occasion, we have brought back uh, the legendary meditation teacher, Sharon Sharon Salzberg, who has been on this show more than any other person for good reason because she's an extraordinary human being who's gotten an extraordinary life story and has been a teacher who's touched the lives of tens of thousands of people. She's written a series of best-selling books and is one of the founding teachers on the 10% Happier app. And she happens to be on the the other side, thankfully, of a really serious health crisis. Uh, I mentioned this on the show a few months ago that went when she was in the throes of this and she was in the hospital in California. And uh, there was a big outpouring of support and love for her. But I wanted to bring her on. I saw. I, I sent her an email when, when she arrived back in, in, in New York after after she got out of the hospital and said, would you be willing to come on the show and talk about it? Because I, 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 I thought it would be useful for people – we're all going to get sick. We're all going to die. And I thought it would be useful for people to hear what it's like to be in a situation where death is a very real possibility. And you've spent decades of your life training your mind in meditation. So Sharon really in, the, in this episode walks us blow by blow through this ordeal. And, and we get a fascinating window into what, what it was like in her, in her head. As she was enduring this one quick little um, plug here before we get into the episode, and that is that she has uh, she's one of the most popular teachers on the 10 percent happier app. And there is a great uh, meditation I want to highlight here. It's one she guides on l- use, doing loving kindness meditation while walking. And she describes it as a kind of silent secret uh, superpower. That can be applied as you walk through the world. So if you go to the on the go category on the app and click on um, and click on uh, her meditations, you can find it there. We've also put a direct link in the show notes. All right. Back to Sharon Salzberg. I want to thank her for all she's done for for me as a teacher and for the bravery that this interview really entailed as you're about to hear. Oh, and one more thing before we go here. We're going to do voicemails this week, but Sharon's going to do them, and we recorded these separately, so the audio will sound a little different, but Sharon's going to take your voicemails at the end of the show, so stay tuned for that. Here we go. Sharon Salzberg. Nice to see you.
1: It's very nice to see you.
0: Uh, A lot of people were really worried about you when the news broke, but I I, I can tell them because they can't see you that you look great. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And I've seen you a couple times over the last few weeks and months, and you're up and about and doing your thing. But I, I I wanted to have you in. You are, you already were the most frequent guest on the show. But I wanted to have you in again <laughs> because I I really am interested in how does a meditation somebody who's been meditating for this long with so much intensity handle a health crisis of the likes of which you just endured. So can we start at the beginning? What happened here?
1: What happened? What happened to me? Well. uh there were some amazing strokes of luck all along the way. You know, I had great good fortune as well. I was staying with some friends, uh, and I was staying in their guest house, which was down the hill from their house. Which would have meant I would have been alone, if all that followed had happened down there. But I happened to be in their actual house, and um, in California. In California, and I was I was flying back the next day. I thought to to New York, and.
0: You were out there teaching meditation? Yeah, I
1: had taught uh, in L.A., I taught in San Francisco, and then I was just visiting my friends, and um, in their house, I sort of, um, I went into some altered state of consciousness. I was shivering, I was I was shaking, and it wasn't unpleasant, you know, I had, uh, it was fascinating. I just thought, wow, this is so interesting, and I'm like tripping, this is so weird, and then I must have passed out. And were you
0: standing up at the time?
1: Uh, no, I was I was on their couch and lying on their couch. But then I got up to go to the bathroom, and that's when I collapsed. And I kind of came to on their couch again, and there was a stranger looking down at me who was an ambulance driver. And he said, I'm here to take you to the hospital. And I was so confused, like, why do I have to go to the hospital? I'm having a fine time, you know, just exploring these other realms of consciousness. And Had I, you
0: been actively exploring other realms? Yeah,
1: of yeah. I mean, I was just out there, you know, and – uh subjectively, I was just shivering and shaking. That's all anybody could see. And I was just like,
0: wow, this is kind of cool. Subjectively to the other people in the room?
1: Or yeah. Sub- I mean, oh, I should say physically. You know, the, the symptom was that I was shivering and shaking. But I was, um, I was not suffering. I, was, I didn't feel ill.
0: Uh, Did you know you were shivering and shaking? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. I knew I was shivering and shaking. But then I thought I was having some
0: experience, some so uh, just to put that in perspective, people who've meditated a lot and some people who haven't meditated that much have quite interesting experiences. Yeah. In particular, there's the this practice known as jhana practice where you get very focused and you – this is going to sound pretty far out, although we've talked about it on the show before – you actually are able to walk into these kind of interconnected rooms in the mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I've, I'm stealing that phraseology from somebody else. Um Where it's pretty far out. Um, And there's a lot, you know, a lot of people have done this, uh, this practice. It's not something, you know, supernatural. And did you think that's what was going on, something along those lines?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I didn't, the the term Jonathan didn't come to my mind, but I I would have these thoughts like, wow, this is kind of like reading my DNA or something. This is like, this is really far out. (laughs) You you
0: weren't freaked out by the fact that all of a sudden you were sitting on a couch one minute and the next minute you're, you know you're shivering and shaking and also, like, looking at your own DNA? Uh,
1: no. <laughs> I, that that part didn't – I mean, I, I – there were uh, – you know, I was uh, – my friend was rubbing my leg, you know. It felt like a massage. Uh, I, you know, I thought, oh, this is just some release of something, you know, something is just happening.
0: I didn't – A release of some sort of energy or something yeah. like that? Okay, again, I just put that in perspective because the untrained ear that's going to sound out there, but in meditation, you know, people sweat or move involuntarily yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. all the time, and actually having an energy release like that is not uncommon.
1: Yeah, no, it's not uncommon, and so I, I didn't think, uh, you know, this is toxicity or I'm ill or get me to the hospital or anything. So, in fact, when this guy looked down at me. And said, I'm here to take you to the hospital. I'm an ambulance driver. He said, is that okay? And I looked at my friends, like, so confused. Like, why do I have to go to the hospital? And then I realized I couldn't remember their names. Uh. And I thought, oh, I have to go to the hospital. And I have zero, zero recollection of the ambulance ride. Um, what had happened was that I, uh, I was uh, getting septicemia just then. It was, like, overcoming me. The bacteria that... Uh, had been in my body, actually in my leg, which nobody knew about, including me, <laughs> yeah, burst into my bloodstream, and so it was—it was just like taking over. So
0: septicemia. So that's is it septic shock. Yeah, that,
1: yeah. I don't. I don't. It's like it's being septic. It's having sepsis, and I don't know at what point the line is where one says, "Oh, now you're in septic shock." I was pretty shocky 'cause because I was, you know, I was unconscious. But as you uh, had said in, in a conversation we had earlier. Uh, you know, I was never intubated. I mean, I hear a lot of stories about people with sepsis that are far worse, but still, I was I was Gonzo, you know. And so uh, I kind of came to somewhat later in the evening in the emergency room, still. And the same ambulance driver was there. He'd already gone out and picked up someone else and brought them in, and he poked his head in and he said, "Boy, you look a lot better. You looked awful when we brought you in." Um. And then uh, there was a lot of effort. Um, you know, They put me on IV antibiotics, but there was a lot of effort to find the original source of the infection so they could target the antibiotics, uh, which took a while. So they uh, gave me a bunch of chest x-rays because they thought I must have pneumonia, which I did not have. And um, they uh, admitted me to ICU. And it was the next day when an infectious disease doctor came in that she she saw like this really small little place on my leg. And she said, oh, that's it.
0: And she was right. Well, how did it happen?
1: Nobody knows. They asked me a lot of questions. I, a lot of people said, uh, did you have a pedicure? Pedicures are famous, which I thought, never again. Um, <laughs> uh, they said, you might have banged your leg on an airplane. You know, you got a scratch. Something happened that I was just unaware of. and uh, And it just... What was odd was that once they got the right antibiotics and then um, the the bacteria started leaving my bloodstream, it kind of went home to my leg, which swelled up like I had elephantiasis. and It was really disgusting, Uh, my poor leg. Um, But it kind of was interesting watching it come home in that way.
0: One thing I'm hearing in your voice is I'm hearing you tell the story, and I don't know if it's just because there's enough distance now, but I'm not hearing a lot of Fear, panic. Um, I don't, I don't, y- y- you seem pretty calm about it. Well, were I mean, you calm in the moment?
1: Was I calm in the moment? I, uh, not as calm as I am now. Okay. okay. <laughs> you know, um, I, I wouldn't say I was panicked, but I was, um, you know, in answer in part to your uh, implied question, I feel like I was supported by my practice throughout, not in a conscious or strained way. Like oh I better you know I better calm down I better start breathing or something, um, but it was there my my first nurse in ICU was actually uh, also an acupuncturist. I was in Santa Cruz, you know, so right away we know everyone's kind of hip, you know. <laughs> uh, so the the nurse was an acupuncturist in uh, Santa Cruz, and he said so he he kind of knew who I was, and and uh, he said at one point oh. Uh, your lips are really chapped. I'm going to go get you a chapstick. And I said to my friend, isn't that sweet? He's going to give me a chapstick. And then I said, well, it's probably not giving it to me. It's probably going to cost me $65, <laughs> you know. And I look back at that and I think, how could my mind have done that? You know, like been detached enough to be funny. I mean, there I am in ICU, you know, like, uh, and yet. There was something, and the next day when the um, infectious disease doctor came in, she said to me, boy, I didn't know what I was going to find in here because your numbers are really bad. Like your white blood cell count is through the roof, but you seem much better than your numbers. And I really honestly feel that that was my practice, you know, that that was sustaining me Um, and giving me a way of looking at my experience that was that was strong. That's not to say I was never scared. I mean, I was scared. I was scared about different things at different times, you know, because there were scary things at different times, different ones. Um, You know, there were moments when people would say, well, you know, this kind of bacteria really likes to go into the heart, so we have to give you an echocardiogram. So it hadn't gone into my heart. Um, I had another echocardiogram later. It hadn't gone into my heart or he would say, "Well, this kind of bacteria really likes to go into the bones, so we've got to give you a CAT scan." You know, give me a CAT scan. It hadn't gone into my bones, and um, my white blood cell count just came steadily down. the The really uh, kind of initial scary thing I remember is that I was so foggy and my head was just cloudy, and I thought maybe this is it. You know, like maybe I'm not going to write another book or speak or. I'm just gonna kind of be in a room kind of mellow, you know, but hopefully, but uh you know, kind of I certainly didn't have mental acuity. I was forgetting people's names or I was like just kind of huh, you know, um, still reading my DNA a little bit, I guess, you know, somewhere well, somewhere else. So that was scary.
0: Well, I just reading your DNA to me seems like you're in a high state of meditation, which wouldn't which would it seems to me. Entail mental acuity, whereas the fogginess seems to be kind of the opposite of meditation.
1: Well, I think that the fogginess was because I had to um, function. Not highly function, but I had to respond to people's questions, or I had to know how to ask for something, or um, and function in a system. You know, I got out of ICOs uh, in a room. And, you know, so it was a little bit like oh, I have to learn this culture. I have to know how to make things work here. And and it was just like, uh, you know, and, and I wasn't non-functional, but I, I was not as bright as I
0: might have wished by any means. It must be that I would imagine would be scary given that you'd spent decades cultivating yeah. awareness, a yeah. Wake, wakefulness.
1: Yeah, no, that was scary. That That was like that was really a low point in, in the whole situation. It was just kind of like, oh, because my mind did, um, my thoughts did what we do, which one really has to be careful of, which was I projected it into the future. This is going to be the way it is maybe. You know, this is how I'm going to function uh, for the rest of my life. Or, um, That life is gone, you know, and so I didn't, quite have the energy i mean i did to some extent you know thank goodness but um it was only a little later i couldn't sleep in the hospital bed um because it was too uncomfortable uh the other thing that, another thing that happened is that i got diagnosed with sleep apnea when i was in there because i would stop breathing and this team of people I had a heart monitor on people would come running in you know like and then they'd wake me up and I'd go what what um and so between the machine and you know the whole thing, I couldn't sleep in the hospital bed, so I was sleeping in this old rickety armchair in the in the room. And uh, the I had to keep my leg elevated, which meant both legs elevated with that that particular recliner. So, um, and that bottom part kept falling down because it was so old and rickety. So, at one point, I thought, oh, you know what? There's that stool off in the corner of the room, and if we take the stool and we prop it up. You know, that bottom part, it's not going to fall down anymore. And then I thought, my brain is back. Now it's back. And that was was actually a turning point.
0: How long were you in the hospital?
1: I was there for 10 days.
0: And did it progressively get better from the moment you entered? Or were there times when, you know, new problems emerged and you thought, oh, no, 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 we're in a worse place now?
1: Uh, It was a lot of up and down because at some point – You know, honestly, you're trying to survive the hospital. You're trying to survive the system. You know, like, um, I guess when I got to the emergency room, they pumped me full of fluids because that's what they do to try to keep your blood pressure from crashing and your organs from failing. And then they had to give me diuretics to get rid of the fluid. And then at one point, the diuretics gave me gout. So uh, there I am. Gout Gout is uh, very painful, very painful condition where I guess the uric acid builds up in your like toe joint or other joints and it was it was so excruciating and that was my other foot
0: the the supposedly healthy foot
1: the healthy foot right so I had one leg that was like swollen and uh you know infected and I had and pain terrible pain in the other foot and I kept saying My other foot really hurts. This is, like, so weird. And uh, the doctor came in again and said, I think you have gout. And they did the test, and I did have gout. You know, the uric acid was too high. So um, then I couldn't walk. Uh, I couldn't bear weight, you know. (laughs) I was, like, really miserable because uh, I had previously gotten up with a walker, using a walker. And, um, you know, another thing I, I really feel my years of practice have given me is it's such a strong sense of a path. So I thought, okay, I've got a path. I've got to get up twice a day. I've got to I've got to try to walk. I've got to um, do this. And it was really hard. One of my great lessons, actually, which I'll tell you in a minute, came from the first time I got up. But all of a sudden I couldn't walk, so I couldn't get to the bathroom. And then it was just like, you know, it was such a regression. And, and there's such a sense of maybe this is endless. This is just a loop, you know. So, again, there's like future thinking, you know, like now I'm –
0: now I'm spiraling. Now I'm
1: spiraling, and um, the uh, that was like a big feeling of a setback, and then my carbon dioxide was too high. You know, I don't even you know. And suddenly they put me on another medicine, and you know, uh, there was they gave me a pick line, you know, so that they weren't always poking my veins, and um, and so then there's always like the fear of infection, and just like. You know, there's just a certain point where I thought, well, I really have to get out of here.
0: And so it sounds like you had many of the reactions that us mortals would have, (laughs) which is, you know, you know, feeling demoralized or fear or the word propuncia, the mental proliferation projection into the future, mostly in a sort of phantasmagoric way. You had all of that we can't run a test to see the version of Sharon that hadn't been meditating for 40 50 years to see what that person how that person would have reacted but do you think is your gut that you had all those normal reactions that we would all have fear anger whatever but that they didn't stay around as long as they otherwise might have
1: oh yeah i mean i i you know uh in all those ways that you know if you know, I was I was kind of describing it. Be sort of like, um, if I didn't get tripped up in future projection, you know, which I did from time to time, but I wouldn't say all the time. Um, then it was it was a lot of stuff passing through me. You know, it was just like washing through me, and certainly fear came and and anger and and there were things to be scared of. You know, and uh, and yet, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a, a detour or a path that I really wanted to, you know. If I if I saw myself beginning to project, well, you know, what's going to be like when I'm back home, you know, like, um, I w- I would say to myself things like, "Why are you rehearsing that?" You know, "Why are you rehearsing catastrophe?" Why are you why are you rehearsing? Uh, such a huge deviation from your life. And so that clearly is a gift of my practice, you know, is being able to catch the popancha, the proliferation, and say, maybe not. And also not have some horrific reaction against myself, like, why are you thinking that? You've been practicing for God knows how many years. You know, it wasn't like that at all. And it was also it was so interesting being in Santa Cruz, like, one point, a nurse came in and she was doing whatever, and she took a look at me and she said, I teach loving kindness to kindergarten kids. You know, and I thought, woo, this is really interesting. Uh, this is really, I also, I really honestly, I got a, a a glimpse of what's happened in these last 40, 50 years in this country. The respiratory therapist came in. I think they put meditation expert on my chart, you know, oh, so see. respiratory therapist came in and he said, I've been meditating for about a year.
0: <laughs>
1: Have you been to Insight Santa Cruz? <laughs> I said, well, no, I haven't actually been there. And uh, you were great, Chris, in case you're listening to this. Um, and then he said, well, do you know Vinny, Vinny Ferraro? And I said, yeah, I know Vinny really well.
0: well well-known well meditation teacher, yeah.
1: Yeah, and he said, well, he's my teacher, you know. And so uh, it was just fantastic to feel um, that, you know, that, that kind of, uh, movement in, into society, and these people worked so hard, and I had so much respect for them, and um, to feel that they were supported in, in what they were doing because that is not easy work.
0: In terms of your interior situation, I'm just curious how to. Uh, what about the pain? I, I'm not particularly good at pain, but one of one of the things in meditation is to try to have a to try to um, hack our kind of habitual response to pain, which is just blind aversion. Um, When you had this screaming pain in your foot as a result of gout, what did you do in your mind?
1: Um, There, too, you know, there was a lot of experience I'd had sitting and looking at pain. I, uh, if I wasn't distracted, you know, if there weren't a lot of people trying to talk to me or, or things going on, uh, if I could just focus, then it was just, it was all right. You know, like they kept saying, you know, do you want something for the pain? What number is the pain? You know, uh, one to 10, and, and do you want something for the pain? And the most I ever took was like
0: Tylenol or something, you know. Um, i go straight for the morphine. Oh, God.
1: <laughs> um,
0: I've never actually had morphine, but I feel like
1: I would. <laughs> but I, um, again, you know, it's it, it's just what it was. Uh, it was the thought of disability more than the physical pain that was
0: scary. You know, I mean, I couldn't walk. And uh, and you thought maybe I'll never walk?
1: I thought, could it be that I will never walk? I mean, there's no reason with gout that you would never walk again. And my leg was, you know, being, being dealt with, but I couldn't walk. And then there's that thought, you know, like, what if, what if, what if this is, is the way it's going to be? Oh, um, so that would be what would trip me up probably more than anything, you know, because I'd had a life and a lifestyle, which was too much travel and too much other things, you know, and that had to change clearly, but how much had to change, and uh it was just like facing this big unknown that was that was pretty scary.
0: What about death because There, you know, when you mentioned before, there were times when they said, well, this could go to your heart, it could go to your bones, and the obvious propuncia loop there is, I'm going to die. Did that happen? And how scary was that for you, especially given that contemplating death, at least theoretically in Buddhism, is a huge part of what's on the menu?
1: You know, I've I've thought about, um, having a different life or having a limited life more than I thought about dying. And maybe that was a way to avoid thinking about dying, you know, like, uh, come to think of it. Um, I mean, I've done a lot of contemplation on death and I would say that I had been maybe very particularly afraid of dying, uh, earlier in my life. You know, my mother died when I was nine and I was brought up by my, uh, father's parents and, um, they were Eastern European, and so both culturally and, and for whatever reason, they never really talked about her again. Uh, they thought it would be too painful for me or something like that. And so so the whole prospect of death was also cloaked in, is this shameful? You know, this is a big secret. This is a terrible thing. No one's going to help you. Um, life's abandoned you. You shouldn't be able to stop this. What is this? And, and it was years of practice uh, that helped ease, I think, some of that particular burden, kind of, you know, psychological or conditioned burden. And then there's just plain old fear, you know? Like, um, I uh, I had visited this friend in hospice not too long before I went out to California. And uh, she said to me, when I get afraid of dying, I just say to myself, what's happening? And I said to her, I, I know it's just a belief system, but I do believe in rebirth, and I realize that when I get afraid of dying, I'm afraid of doing it wrong. So I say to myself, you've done this before. You know how to do this. And and so I realize that there in the hospital that um, I didn't think I was going to die. I mean, nobody was, you know, but uh, that I didn't have to have, like, the right experience, you know, or. Or make it be a certain way. I just had to be with what is, and and I would laugh at that memory. Like I've done this before, you know. <laughs> like I've done this so many times. And <laughs> she had laughed at my the, the saying it. Um. I, you know, I, I. That was part of what you know. When I would go there, like I would say, "Don't rehearse that." You know, you're kind of, um. You're putting all your energy into creating the scenario that. Uh, doesn't seem that likely. You know, you're here. You're being taken care of. You're on antibiotics. Or, uh, nothing's fit. No organs failed so far. Um, I did. Somebody sent me a a web, a link to a website saying that someone they knew who'd had sepsis uh, found it very helpful. So of course, I also got uh a lot of you know emails and stuff. I had sepsis. You know, I almost died. You, know, you got to be really careful. The hardest part's the recovery. You could still die, um, <laughs> but somebody sent me this link, and it was some site that I'm sure other people did find very helpful. So the first thing I had to decide was uh, because I didn't know which which to click. Am I an elderly person who's had sepsis? And I thought, and I thought, I kind of am actually. That was a shock too.
0: Um, How old are you? I'm 66. I guess that qualifies. Yeah. What's the cutoff for elderly?
1: I don't know, but like every time the nurses in the hospital would change shift and they would do report in front of you, uh, which was interesting. Um, they'd say she's a 66 year old woman. I think, who's that? <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, it's me. <laughs> um, but uh, I am elderly. So I clicked yes. And then the first thing the, the site said was something like uh, many people who've had sepsis. Uh, report that they've lost one or two significant capacities as a result. And I closed it up, and I never looked at it again. And I would just keep telling myself, don't go there. You know, this is not a question of being unrealistic. This is just like, don't go there. You know, that's creating a world um, that you don't have to believe in utterly and and kind of hold and let define you. And certainly now I know all these people who've had sepsis. A lot of them are not limited, you know, or haven't lost capacities at all. So I thought, don't do that. You know, it was easy to do that, you know, because you're um, in a hospital, you're not wearing clothes, you're eating their food, you know. You're, uh, you're being defined by a lot of other people. But I just kept saying, don't do that. Just don't do that. When I would do that, it was miserable. You know, that was those were the places of all that future projection. Oh, what if I, you know, can never do this again? Or what if I can't teach? Or what if I can't do whatever? But I had, I mean, it's really, it's just those years of practice that came through for me uh, as it, as they do, which is wonderful. You know, and it was just like, you don't have to do that.
0: I I don't know if what I'm about to say is going to resonate in any way, but I've often had the thought or realization on retreat, that if I'm suffering, I'm not being mindful of something.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that roughly what happened with you? In other words, you you were suffering when you got lost in these projections, but actually, when you had time to just focus on the pain and feel it non-judgmentally, there wasn't a lot of suffering. It sounds like.
1: Well, I think you know here, you kind of have to make some people make a distinction between pain and suffering because mm-hmm. I'm also very much of a school. I do believe that, uh, I believe pain happens. You know, something's just hurt. That's one of my favorite, favorite slogans. Something's just hurt. And it's very unfair to say to ourselves, well, if I had a better attitude, this wouldn't hurt. Or if I didn't resist it, you know, it's all my fault in a way. My bad thinking is making this hurt. I think something's just hurt, you know, and... Uh, but it's like that extra suffering we don't need. And and that I think uh, over and over again I saw, oh, it's easy to fall into that. You know, you you don't want to do that. Um, and it was – and I was also, you know, I was so lucky. Like it did not go into my heart or it did not go into my bones or, you know, when I had a problem it could be addressed and it was just a matter of time or – Um, you know, so I can't swear that if things had gone in a, you know, worse direction, I would, I would have been so capable. But I I really just think it's like all those hours, you know, even those hours you think, why am I sitting here? You know, nothing's happening or I'm just dealing with this knee pain or, and it's like, it counts. It really counts. Counts how? Because I found strengths, or I found... Oh, ca-
0: ca- we well, were talking about all those hours of meditating. Yeah, all those yes, hours yeah. of
1: meditating, they really count. Because uh, there were times, of course, I had to consciously bring in perspectives or strengths that I could draw on, you know, like, this will change too. or. But there, there were a lot of times when it just arose within me because I had practiced it again and again and again
0: and again. In other words, you're feeling the pain and the there's the there's the raw data of the pain, and then there's the extra layer we add of this is gonna happen this is gonna be with me forever. Yeah, I will yeah. never get out of this, yeah, yeah, but after all those years of meditation practice, you were able to sort of spontaneously realize everything changes all the time, yeah. this is gonna yeah, change too yeah,
1: yeah
0: what a that's an amazing gift you oh, gave yeah. yourself
1: well, we do, <laughs> you know, I mean of course it's not just me and and uh. It reminds me of, you know, I was interviewed for, I think it was Good Housekeeping, which is really ludicrous if you (laughs) see my house, any of them, Um, and whatever I had to say didn't ultimately make it into the article anyway, but uh, the question was something like, how do you think, how do you use mindfulness in a time of complete crisis? And what I said was, I wouldn't wait, like, don't wait. Um, And, of course, people sometimes wait and they reach for something in the midst of, you know, the bottom's falling out and you're in the hospital and it's all scary. And even then it might prove to be a resource or or something helpful. Um, But the, you know, the truth was like you don't have to wait. And, And just like that time we put in. Uh, which does often seem inconsequential or boring or useless it's like it does matter uh i really saw that so clearly because because there it was you know something was holding me up in a way so that this doctor could walk in and say boy you seem a lot better than your numbers
0: i mean you're well first of all I, i guess i have two things to say to that one is I was going to ask you, what are the lessons in your story for the rest of us? And I'm sure there are many, but that seems like a big one. That – because I know a lot of – I hear from people all the time who feel compelled, I'm sure you're in this position too, to come up and confess to me their meditation secrets. I got to be honest with you. I only do it when things are going poorly and then when when things are bad. When things are good, I just drop it or whatever. And I often say, well, you know, doing it when things are good is – will give you the, the strength to have those bad times be less bad. So that seems to be a really powerful takeaway. The other thing um, that just came to my mind as you were saying that was a, 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 a thing that your longtime colleague, Joseph Goldstein, often says about meditation, which is that you can view it as practicing for death, for mm-hmm. the dying process. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you be awake with a knee pain right now? And if you're a little thing that might come to mind as you're dealing with the knee pain is if I can be with this, you know, can I be with whatever's coming at the end of my life? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any response to either of those things?
1: Yeah. I mean, when, you know, the friend I had visited in hospice, um, uh, when she died, Joseph said to me, we're in the queue, you know, like to die. And that's something we don't often think about. And we're so busy for one thing. I am so busy that to take a moment and realize oh yeah and um and yet you know I, I do feel I had also told you I would tell you about when I first time I got a walk which I will in a minute but I do feel uh, something shifted you know from from that experience as well even though I contemplate death and I you know I do that as an exercise it, it was really like I find things don't stick in quite the same way. You know, I wanted, like, I'm writing a book right now. I believe you may be too. And, uh, you know, I, I just pick my head away from that computer now and then. But, um, and I, I hope it serves people. I hope it does well. But it's like, really, I mean, the thought of, you know, doing what people do and like checking the numbers on Amazon, I thought, I don't care. I don't care. Well, I do that a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you didn't just get out of the hospital. No, I did You know, so that was... That but was. has
0: that lasted? Because I, yeah. I often find that I get to the end of a meditation retreat. I had one almost a, about t- 10 months ago. And at the end of it, it was a loving-kindness meditation retreat uh, with our mutual friend, Spring Washam. And at the end, I felt like, you know, I understand everything about how I need to live my life from now on. And I'm going to... Ha- everything's in perspective. And then, you know, I'm checking my Amazon rank, you know, a week later, probably less than that. But this sounds more powerful.
1: Well, I, of course, my book hasn't come out yet, so (laughs) we'll see how bad I am. But uh, it it feels – I feel different. You know, I feel that there has been something where it's just like, let's just have a good time or let's just – well, part of what happened was that uh, the first time I got up to walk in the hospital was with a walker. And, uh, which is very hard, you know, and uh, a physical therapist. And she said to me at one point, it's not a race, you know. She said, you'll go further if you just stop now and then and rest. And that's become my new mantra. It's not a race, you know. Um, because that, you know, was, was a big thing. You know, like, let's do it. Let's get it done. Let's, you know, there's so much to do. Let's do more. Um, and let's do it. Quickly, and then I say to myself, "It's not a race, you know. Like, who are you competing against? Yourself, you know. Like, just, just relax. Do it. Stop and rest." So, uh, you know, I moved. Um, my friends who were saintly, you know, offered me their house when I was getting ready to leave the hospital, or before the doctor said to me, "It's illegal to prescribe anything IV over state lines. You've got to stay in California." And nobody knew how long I'd be on IV antibiotics for. And, um, you know, it could have been months. It turned out just to be two weeks. because I made a meteoric recovery. Um, and, and she said, you can go into a skilled nursing home, which would be a really difficult experience, or work something else out. And my friends, like, offered me um, their guest house. Another friend offered uh, home health care aids. And so I created this world um, in their guest house. And it was, it was amazing because, actually, Bob Thurman wrote to me. Um,
0: a eminent Buddhist scholar at Columbia.
1: Yeah, and he said, you know, whenever the Dalai Lama has a challenge like this, he goes into retreat. Why don't you go into retreat? And so I basically, I didn't go into like full retreat as we know it, but um, I had two months. I didn't, the only place I ever went was the doctors or the, uh, medical supplies tour and uh, I practiced and I wrote and I hung out with my home health care aides who became my good friends and um, I asked people not to come see me right away. I didn't talk to anyone on the phone um, and it was it was really a restorative period. It was really important and um, my theme is it's not a race, you know, it just – do what you can do, do it at a different pace, relax, you know, have fun, keep breathing while you can. Um, and so I it'd be interesting to see how often I check Amazon when, when the book comes out. right now it feels like it's all right, whatever.
0: Stay tuned. more of our conversation is on the way after this. third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans plan features may vary credits stop if you cancel or change plans the weather is getting warmer time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees Happier. If the thirty-five-year-old version of you was listening to this, had some way to listen to this interview back when you know she was starting to write books, and you know you had already founded this eminent meditation uh, retreat center and yeah. Go Go Go, uh, which you carried on for a long time would you have been able to hear it's not a race would you and and can the rest of us somehow operationalize this wisdom or do we need to have gone through the particular hell that you went through uh what do they say smart people learn from their own mistakes wise people learn from other people's mistakes
1: oh that's a good thing
0: yes yeah, so i don't i think i saw that in a movie the other day anyway is that possible that we that we we could incorporate cuz i find the idea of it's not a race very attractive because I am doing what you described before of let's do more let's do it quickly blah 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 can, can I do what you're describing without somehow losing my edge or whatever
1: oh i think so i mean that's you know um the things i learned by the time i was 35 you know uh through my teachers and and through uh people like that was also enormous you know, I've had a very countercultural life. And, um, and, uh, definitely, I think that's why we reflect on death. or That's why we, we listen, you know, to others having this experience and we pay attention. I'll also say that, you know, I was overwhelmed by the degree of love and, and care that came toward me. Um, it had never been my intention to, Kind of to a widespread announcement of what I was going through, and somehow it happened. And yeah, well,
0: we did. I did a big thing on the show here. Oh, you and did, yes, yes, yes. and off, there was something on your website, <laughs> and I heard from everybody. Uh, I know. So I know. Yeah, there was a lot of love.
1: It was enormous, and and so touching. Um, and that really supported me too. I mean, it really. Uh, I felt so gratified, and I felt like oh, you know, here's this kid who's a respiratory therapist and he's he's just learning how to meditate. You know, <laughs> all the people who had to teach me breathing exercises were always so embarrassed, you know, <laughs> like, oh, I can't believe I have to teach you how to breathe. Um, you know, or the nurse who's teaching loving kindness to children. or um, I thought, you know, I, I didn't set out to have a legacy. I wasn't that kind of person, and none of us were. You know, I I was twenty three when we started IMS and and uh Insight
0: Meditation Society. Yes, you. The
1: Insight Meditation Society. And it was none of us could have imagined what would happen in this country or around the world in terms of mindfulness or or the practice. And it wasn't like a vision we held, like, oh, we're gonna have a worldwide, you know, impact. It was nothing. It was like if we can make it through the year, we'd be so happy. Um and and yet it it's what transpired. So I felt a degree of fulfillment and certainly gratitude, you know, as, as all that love came pouring in. And, um, you know, a lot of people sent me flowers, and there were so many that I just gave them. You know, I would, like, look at them for a little bit, then I'd send everything away. Everything. I got given away, and um, somebody came in. I think she was an occupational therapist at one point. whose mother was in the hospital. And she said to me, are you the flower lady? And I said, my mom got four roses. It's like so <laughs> great. It made her so happy. <laughs> um, I was so moved by, by that. And I thought, well, that's a life well lived. You know, I mean, there's nothing else I can accomplish that will, that will ever match that. And so this need to accomplish something is also like, wow, you know, I can rest too.
0: Wait. Say more about this. So, given the the love s- s- w- that you received was a symbol of the fact that you had done great. You had made great contributions. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. So, drop the mic.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, it was it was just like sheer joy and gratitude, and um, it was overwhelming, really. Um. So even though I you know, it had not been my intention that it would be on my website or that it'd be uh kind of I the only people I really was set on informing with I had to cancel a whole
0: bunch of things. Well, that's why I was on the website.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, so but I, I just wanted all those organizers, those particular I was also very, you know, like naive, like uh they tell me that I think the first night that I was in ICU, my friends were hanging around and um I was saying things like, "Well, I can't. I won't get to um, Jordan in in two and a half weeks, but maybe I can get to Paris by the end of the month." And you had
0: a, you had an engagement in in the country of Jordan. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, with uh, humanitarian healthcare workers, people working in the Syrian refugee camps, and I couldn't make it. And uh, but you know, the fact that I thought I was going to be in Paris in three weeks and. My friends were thinking, "Yeah, right. You're really delusional."
0: <laughs> so, what was your was your schedule? I mean, I, I've known you for a while, but and I I know you have a busy schedule, and you're somehow on Twitter and email like all the time, uh, or at least seemingly all the time. I am. So all you the time. you you and you pump out a book every five minutes. Um, so I know that your schedule has been crazy, but it, it's it's really crazy. It was really it was crazy. really
1: crazy. And Joseph kept saying to me, "I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you're doing it." And of course, I couldn't
0: do it, but I was doing it,
1: and, and I couldn't sustain it.
0: And You're also 10 years younger than him, but still. I am,
1: I'm... Uh, I nine years goodness. younger than him. Yeah, nine years younger than he is.
0: Yeah, but he's very protective of his energy. Yes, he is. Yes.
1: He is, which is very smart, and uh, he's always been a model like that for me, but and even now, you know, like, I, I get... I, I can't travel the way I once did. I'm teaching, I'm writing, you know, like, I certainly feel like i'm active you know and uh, plus life is complicated you know everything in in samsara seems to become medicare is complicated like how do i get this to pay for that and it's just like there's a lot to do just just getting by but um you know when i get an invitation my new mantra about that is don't answer right away you know because you're going to want to say yes and you just can't say yes to everything just like Breathe a bit, you know. Answer it a little later, and that's really important.
0: What was driving your high productivity, your peripatetic nature? What, what was what made Sammy run there? What was going on? <laughs> I,
1: I think there's so many different levels. There was a level in which I was just grateful someone wanted me. You know, like wow, you know, they want me to come teach. That's amazing.
0: Um, but that seems like I hear low self-esteem in there. Uh
1: it could hear that i mean that that's not an unreasonable assessment i would probably have said um not being in touch with kind of that feeling of how much i had done you know it wasn't that i wouldn't have been grateful but i just didn't sit and receive like you know you've done a lot like this is you know, ticket, it's not a race, you know, like, take it slowly. Some of it is that um, I get uh, pulled in a lot of different directions. You know, there's a, a whole initiative, which I am now a part of, it seems, to uh, bring tools of meditation and things like that to people whose lives have been affected by gun violence. You know, so it started out, am I going to, Parkland community um you went Florida. to parkland i went to parkland and uh now there's going to be a retreat um uh, at the study center in Barry for uh not only people from parkland but people from pittsburgh and people from you know um a small obviously retreat uh with an enormous number of people on faculty um, or when I was going to go to Jordan for the international humanitarian aid workers, there are things that that move me to do, and then there are other things that are um, livelihood, you know, really frankly, and then there, uh, you know, there's responsibility to the Insight Meditation Society, and then there's this, and then there's that, and I just was not good at at really curtailing. Um, all of that I think, oh, isn't that exciting? I could be involved in this research project. Oh, isn't that amazing? I can you know I can do that as well or like, wow, you know, it's only three flights to get there <laughs> you know, and if I stay away, then I can go from there to there. And uh, it was just all
2: wrong.
0: I really resonate with that in particular, and this is probably a projection on my part, the low self-esteem of it. Mm-hmm. Like I wrote a book. And all of a sudden, I nobody ever asked me to go speak anywhere. And then, like, now everybody's asked me to go give talks. And, oh, yeah, yeah. they want me to come talk? Yeah, yeah fine, yeah. I'll go do it. And, yeah. oh, yeah, somebody else wants me to write a book with them or maybe start an app or – Um, you know maybe do a collaborative process with x and y and z and Mm -hmm. so you say yes because like it's exciting and you can't believe and also there's the remuneration like yeah people at meditation teachers don't make a lot of money that's correct um and much of what you do relies on what's called dana which is generosity or in other words people pay what they can and sometimes that means they pay nothing yeah um and you do it anyway Mm -hmm. um in your case i think i'm speaking i know i am speaking for you here but i think i'm speaking for you correctly there's a deep belief in what you're doing and the need that other human beings have for this i think i have less of that idealism I'll, i'm embarrassed to admit but it, i have some but not as much i i'm guessing here but i can see from my own personal experience how you would get into this situation yeah because i've done it and it's gotten me into a lot of trouble yeah
1: yeah no definitely well you also have, you, know, you have a family and you have other um things but yes you know i i don't receive uh, any money for the work I do with say parkland um, and I have an apartment in New York City, you know those things also need to be balanced out and um, and I had you know a book contract I'm oddly enough, I have three books coming out next year because it's the twenty fifth anniversary of loving kindness,
0: which was your sort of seminal work one which of the, was my first book yeah the 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 work that really really helped put compassion meditation practices on the map
1: you know so that uh i I just wrote a new afterword for that uh the publisher of real happiness is reissuing it next year so Mm -hmm. i wrote a new forward for that and i have the book book which i've been working on
0: which is about
1: Uh, it's mindfulness loving kindness and social change so um it's Eight chapters. I'm working on seven and eight simultaneously, and then the intro, and then I've got a first draft, so we're close.
0: But just getting at the – just getting back to the it's not a race, I'm just wondering – I asked this before, and I don't think we really chased it down. Can – i I'll just put it in – I'll keep it in the eye, as as some, some people say in meditation circles. <laughs>
2: can,
0: can I – I mean, I haven't gone through a health scare the way you have. But could I, or could the 35 version of your old version of you, or our listeners today, who are out there thinking, "Well, you know, I got to make a living," it's not a race. Sounds good, but you know, um, I haven't done everything that Sharon Salzberg's done. I can't take in the magnitude of my um, contributions and kind of exhale. Is this operational for other people? It's not a race.
1: I think it is. You know, because I think we've all incorporated it to some extent or another because otherwise we'd be completely crazy or we'd have collapsed long ago. Um, You know, I think it's it's bringing it more and more because I think it has a lot to do with um, quality of effort more maybe even than quantity of effort because it's like I am writing and uh, I don't feel... um, I know in writing, when I've been really in a bad state, I felt like, just phone it in. You know, like, this is your eighth or ninth or tenth book. It's like nobody cares what you have to say anymore. And I I worked out of that state by getting re-inspired, but I don't feel that. You know, I don't feel like, oh, you know, I was in the hospital and I was so sick and who knows what could have happened, so let me just, you know, turn in whatever or, you know. It's not like that at all. I feel as, because you used the word um, edge earlier, you know, uh, so when I think of edge, I think of excellence. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel as committed as I've ever felt to turning in something excellent, you know, to the best of my ability. Um,
0: Why? Because you want it to reflect well on you or because you think excellence will help more people?
1: Uh i I honestly don't think about how it's going to reflect on me at this point. I just think that's the way to do things you know, like if you've got limited time and you know this will be my eleventh book um and I don't know that there will be any more or certainly many more and this is um it's a little bit similar to the book I wrote faith in in that it's something that I I very much have wanted to write for some time and I got the opportunity to, to do it. And so we'll see, we'll see what happens, but I don't feel like, um, Oh, well, you know, this person's book is coming out before mine and they're going to probably say 50% of the same thing. So how unfortunate, you know, if only I it's like, who cares? Um, Honestly, genuinely, like, who cares? Uh, I don't think you have to lose your edge. I don't, I don't think – it depends on what your edge is, but uh, I I don't think you have to lose your commitment to excellence and to really uh, shining in a way and, and uh, even ambition, you know, having having that. But when it gets crazy, then uh, it's ruining your life. You're trading in your life for some story.
0: So you can – Strive for excellence, as one of my friends' dads used to tell us when we were little kids, he would say, strive for excellence. Um, You can strive for excellence in the spirit of it's not a race. Yeah. So that you're not, while striving for excellence, making yourself and everybody around you miserable.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, Because I think it's um, incremental. It's like we've all done it to some extent. You know, that's the lesson learned. I mean, that's the thing I saw with myself. I thought you knew that already. Why, you know? But how deeply do we know it, and and we keep maybe learning the same thing again and again and again. Um, we all have changed in some way. Could be worse. Another mantra. Could have been a lot worse. Um, but it's a continual process of of growth and change. And so, I think lessons learned. You know, like we just continue to get better.
0: How's your health now?
1: I think good. I hope good. You know, like, I I get very tired. Um, So, uh, less so, though. Uh, when I went up to teach at the Insight Meditation Society in May, rather than a full teaching load, I just, I peered for an hour a day in the hall. Uh, I spoke, we sat, I did questions. And in some ways, it was the way to maximize my connection to the whole group rather than you know maybe seeing a part of the group in small groups or individually as we as one would often do there are other people doing that um and I uh, just taught this last weekend at Kropalo I co-taught and I saw I'm le- I saw I'm a lot less tired than I was in May hmm. uh, but that's sort of the biggest marker is that I just I just get really tired
0: what would you say has been what would you th- would you say is the the hardest part about this experience that has been contributory to your overall well-being? In other words, what's been the most valuable challenge? Was it stopping? Was it letting other people take care of you? Uh, was it facing death? Was it all of those?
1: I think it was all of those in, in a lot of ways. Like Um Again, you know, like with the reflection on death, which is something I do, uh, it, it can also be quite abstract until it's not. Like I have I have a friend in uh in Barry where the Insight Meditation Society is, where I always said, um, you know, the closets are a mess and if I die and you have to clean them out, please don't judge me. So that was our pact, you know. <laughs> and then the reason why I thought, you know, those closets really are a mess like Maybe I should clean that up or I had to do a health directive, you know, which I had not done, which Joseph kept saying to me, you need to do this. And End of life yeah. uh,
0: d- directions for caregivers. Yeah,
1: yeah you know, and, and now I have one. And, uh, you know, it's it's much more real than it had been before. It was not easy to let other people. It's still not easy to let other people take care of me. And Why? It, it's just some conditioning. I'm, I'm used to taking care of other people and it's like uh, I find it embarrassing, you know, like, oh, you uh, but you do you know, think it's rooted
0: in some way in your hi- personal history where you know you, you lost your mother early, your dad, you lost him as well?
1: Yeah. Uh, probably, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm probably undoubtedly, you know, that. Um, and the way I got by was by making sure I got by, you know, mm-hmm. like I went to college when I was 16, I was, you know, uh,
0: you handled your business.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I survived. So that's how I'm used to surviving.
0: And so what's it like when you can't handle your business? Can't walk?
1: Yeah. No. It was. It was. Uh, I was so grateful for like that nursing staff because they, you know, I kept apologizing. I said, "I'm so sorry," you know. I have to, and and they say, "No, no," you know, whatever they were thinking. You know, they were they were incredibly gracious and 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 generous. And my friends, you know, it was like, um, you know, people have. Than and and continue to really offer me a lot, you know and it's it's been very beautiful and and this is always this moment of like Ugh.
0: isn't there a phrase in Buddhism something about letting go,
1: oh yeah, that one <laughs> so
0: that this one. seems like a pretty big exercise in letting yeah. go of yeah. control
1: well, I remember when uh Ram Das had a stroke and um we were co-teaching once in Hawaii and he said he was giving a talk and he said something like, um, of all the things that happened to me after the stroke. And now this is significant, you know, like he's been in a wheelchair ever since it's been like 20 years, his speech, which had been like his superpower, um, has been pretty affected, you know, so when he gives a talk there are long silences or, or whatever. um, He said, the hardest thing of all was letting people take care of me. And he said, one of my most famous books was called, How Can I Help? He said, maybe I should write a book now called, How Can You Help Me? (laughs) (laughs) Because, uh, and he's been an incredible model for me as I've gone through this, because it was very hard for him. And he's so mm, kind of porous now. It's just like love. He's so loving. And you can see he's receiving it and he's offering it and it's not um, weird in any way. It's, it's so um, flowing now. And so I think of that, but that's hard. You know, it's quite hard to be that different. And it was really hard to stop
0: because stop the forward momentum, Yeah,
1: stop the forward momentum because uh, people have very different views and, um, underst levels of understanding of anyone's state you know and so i you know I, the invitations would keep coming in well now that you've had a week off you know like maybe you'd like to come here or, um oh, i'm so glad you got back to new york would you come to my you know uh and those are all things that if i say yes i would do because i was moved by them not because they were helping my livelihood or sustain me, you know, and so there's a balancing act that's very different that that has to happen now, and it's hard. It's hard to say, you know, I can't do everything I used to do, or sorry, I can't show up at your thing, or, you know, I will have just left Barry where I'm teaching for the first time um, in an extended retreat. You know, I can't then, or, you know, somebody wanted me to do some extremely noble thing, um, which would have meant uh, this is this coming September. Um, they're opening the noble thing is that they're opening a kind of resilience center in uh, Pittsburgh. You know, after there had been that synagogue shooting, and um, they're naming the resilience center something like House of Loving Kindness. Um, and people wanted me to go and uh, teach loving kindness, and and it was like extremely noble, what it would have meant. I'm teaching here in the city all day on that Saturday would have meant teaching all day, going to the airport, uh, flying to Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh is not close as it turns out. Um, teaching something, you know, and I just wrote to the person, I said, those days are over, you know, where I'm teaching all day and running to an airport. They just have to be over.
0: You okay with that? I am okay with
1: that. I feel mixed, you know, cause I would just, uh, place in me that wishes they were not over that i could respond to that because it's so beautiful um and uh and yet you know that would be crazy i could just see like legions of disapproving friends like what you know (laughs) you're doing what (laughs) i'm too scared to do that
0: as we're heading toward the close here i just want to make sure i didn't leave any boxes unchecked is there something that i should have asked that I don't know. Let me just say this. Do you
1: want to talk about your hospice training and all? Is that Sure. Yeah, I'm very curious about that.
0: I'll say the thing I was going to say later. Well, I've been doing the hospice training for a couple of years uh, with our mutual friends, uh, Koshin Paley Ellison and Robert Chodo Campbell. And yeah, I still go. I think I'll be going later today. We're recording this on a Saturday morning originally i was it's a small hospice in the upper east side of manhattan and i would originally when i was doing the training a couple years ago three years ago maybe i would go and really be a regular volunteer where i would go to all the rooms now my volunteer training ended and i would have kind of let it lapse just because i'm so busy and mr do one more thing guy um i think you might be able to relate to that and but there was a patient in there who I don't think is going to die anytime soon. He's been there for five years. Oh, my God. Yes. I think it's like a world record hospice uh, stay. And uh, we're quite close now. And so now I go and just spend time with Ronnie. And mostly what we do is play violent video games, which is a little incongruous in yeah. a hospice. We're killing zombies together. But that's the way it is. He likes video games. And we have, you know, like on paper, nothing in common. He's a... 61-year-old former construction worker from Harlem. and uh, But we just totally hit it off. So, yeah, I go in there pretty much once a week and spend time with him, and then I usually order dinner in for him and the staff. Yeah, it's it's really nice. Mm -hmm. And I I will say, we talked a lot about death. I will say this, I'm still terrified of death, of course. I I don't want to present some image that's incorrect, but I'm less terrified than I used to be because I see that, the end, at the end, most of the people I've seen are comfortable physically, and many of them are comfortable psychologically. Mm-hmm. I've seen some people fight it, and that looks really tough. Or I've seen some anxiety set in, which looks really tough. But it, it, does, it doesn't feel wrong. You know what I mean? It feels like I, over over time, I've started to see like, oh, yeah, of course, we're nature. And this is part of nature. Yeah. And... We don't feel it viscerally, but you can get there by seeing it over and over and over again. It just starts to feel less wrong. Like, of course.
1: Yeah, that's amazing that you do that, you know, because all of society seems geared toward let's look somewhere else, (laughs) you know. Let's look the other way. Um, And it's the wrongness of it. That's what I was trying to say about my childhood, you know, that the way things all went down made it seem wrong, you know, like – Alienated from nature. This shouldn't have happened. You know, this only happened to you. You know, this doesn't happen to others. You're isolated. You're alone. You're weird. And, um, but of course, that's also what led me to Buddhism because the first time I heard what the Buddha taught, it had to do with suffering as a part of life, and it was like, oh right, you know, I do belong. That that I'm not that alienated. That you know, and one of the interesting things about being in the hospital um, is that uh, partly because my father was in so many psychiatric hospitals throughout my childhood, uh, and I would leave a facility and be on the street and think, nobody knows what's happening behind closed doors, you know? People are just walking around without some sense of like a whole level of, of society um, and what people go through. and. Uh, I don't have that feeling that much anymore. And then when I was out of the hospital, I would think, oh, you know, people, you know, we drive by these places and, and we don't necessarily stop and think, oh. um, Lots of stories here. When they moved me to an actual room out of ICU, um, the uh, one whole wall was not actually a wall. It was more like a... Room divider or something. Um, so I couldn't see anything going on in there, but I could hear everything, like every conversation. And there was a, a pretty rapid turnover of people in the next room. Um, and so it was a lot of stories that I heard in a lot of different languages. Um, and I think nobody, you know, driving by would necessarily think, oh, look at the intricacy of, of people's stories and how many kinds of people are in there and, and struggling and, or, you know, when I would get up in the Walker and walk by these other people also with IV poles, you know, and, uh, using walkers. I think, who are you? Um, look at here. this is where we meet humanity. We meet in, in scary places and suffering and disability and facing death. And, and look how cut off we are usually from one another.
0: It's because we've structured society like Santa's Workshop where uh, there's an island of misfit toys, right? So all the misfit toys are sent to an island uh, and we don't see them. But all we see are the, the working toys and the elves making them and all that stuff. And as soon as like something's messed up, it's very quickly sent away to uh, inside the hospital or um, inside a nursing home or a hospice. And so most of us aren't confronted with this in any way until disaster strikes but then the other thing that i've really noticed is even is how quickly habits reassert themselves mm-hmm. so you can have you know a friend of mine her dad died recently and she said it was like the tectonic plates shifted for her now i don't know what's happened in the subsequent weeks but i can imagine just reverting back to the old habits of, you know, momentum around taking care of her family and her professional life. I don't know that that's what happened for her, but I could imagine that happening for me. And I can also see what happens for me when I, even though I have a sustained, not episodic vantage point on, you know, on the island of Misfits Toys um, on the other side of the curtain uh, by going to the hospice regularly. And so once in a while I'm walking down the street lost in my own like fog of to-do list or Self pity or anger or what you know, practicing some long invective. I'm going to hurl at my boss, um, and then I'll wake up and be like, "Oh my god!" But but I'm not. I can. I'm walking. You know, like, well, how much would Ronnie give to be just walking down the street right now? Um, But those moments are pretty few and far between. Yeah. Most of the time, I'm caught up, and yeah. So it's 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 easy to have the realization, hard to make it last.
1: Yeah, I I mean I I tend to want to give you more credit for those moments um than I suspect you're giving yourself because they matter too and I uh, I think progress or change is always like that, you know, we take three steps forward, we take two steps back. We don't like those two steps back and we we grieve over that, but it's too, you know, it's not as far back as we once were. And, and, and those moments are, are really important and they grow. They really do grow because um, I think we can get more mindful in an ordinary day and then there are also the big challenges and then it's it's there. It really is there, that kind of sustaining strength of, of a different perspective. And they say that um, one of the Buddha's uh, pieces of advice, if you're sitting with someone who's dying or you're with someone who's dying, is to remind them of the good that they've done. And it always used to puzzle me because I thought, well, wouldn't that get them more attached? Like, cause if you say you were a great cousin and you, you know, you took me to the park, you're supposed to be specific if you can be. Um, And I thought that would be the last mm-hmm. thing you want to do is get them even more attached. So they'll struggle, they'll, they'll suffer more. But people ask me, of course, a lot. And, and I've always said that, you know, this is what I've heard the Buddha said. And, and Every single time people have come back and, and said it was perfect because uh instead of focusing on regret or the things undone or unlearned uh, there was just this sense of both the power of goodness we've been able to access and the joy of having not blocked it or hindered it in some way and you know expressed it and been a good cousin or you, you know you took the kid to the playground or or something like that and so. I see a lot in, in that light, too, you know, that if we let ourselves um, rejoice more in the good that we have been able to do or the fact that we're committed or that we care about others or that you go to the hospice once a week, um, there are lots of places to go once a week when you work hard, you know, and and the hospice isn't necessarily the easiest and um, it's not like conceit or arrogance. It's, it's like taking delight. It's really rejoicing. and and the more we do of that, I think the less um, terrible those moments of backsliding seem. You know they're real and and maybe say something, but they' they're not the whole story, really.
0: And I can also see how it would lead to letting go. I mean because it it happened with you, when you received all yeah, of the love right. when you were having the health crisis. That allowed you to let go of of uh, that allowed you to embrace. It's not a race, yeah. And I could see how at the end, te- telling somebody, "Hey, job well done," then they can drop their mic yeah. and say, "Okay, I can let go yeah. without struggling." And, so maybe
1: we have to do that before the end. Well, you know? <laughs>
0: I mean, dying before you die is yeah. a is a theme we've discussed on I've discussed on the show before. It's just, yeah. can you take the wisdom? that we often only get in those last and final moments and, and in, incorporated into your life. I'm very interested in that. I, I'll just say in closing that unless and you certainly are welcome to say anything else you want um, that, you know, I, I think what you were talking about before that we can get better at these things. You now you're, you're referring to that. I occasionally will wake up walking down the street and we can, we can get better over time. It just goes right to my, the animating insight of my meditation career, which is the mind is trainable. And you've been training people's minds for a long time and made an enormous contribution, even in my own life, right? And I think coming here today and talking about this very painful, physically and psychologically, this painful episode in your own life is a very powerful teaching for other people. So I thank you for sharing it.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Really?
0: Thank you, Sharon. Love you. All right. love you too. Okay. As we said at the show, at the beginning of the show, Sharon's doing the voicemails this week. We recorded this separately, but uh, I think I think it'll be a treat. So uh, here is voicemail number one, starting with Tori from South Carolina.:
3: Hi, Dan. First, uh, my obligatory but sincere thank you for your podcast and your books that I have not only read but reread several times. They are immeasurably helpful to me. Um, so, my question is a twofold question about meta meditation. I meditate regularly, pretty much every morning, for 10 to 20 minutes. Um, my question is How often should I incorporate meta into my daily practice? Um, is there like a prescribed amount? How often do you do it? Is it, you know, daily, weekly, or more circumstantial when perhaps you are having issues with a person? Um, and my second part of the meta question is. Um, I am having trouble holding visualization when I do meta. I've been listening to the Sharon Salzberg podcast, and um, I know that she prescribes, so that while you're thinking the medita- meta meditation thoughts, you are told um, a kind of a visualization of the person in your mind. I have real trouble doing that for whatever reason, um, including my family, which I find kind of disturbing. But um, I wondered how important it is um, to hold a real visualization like that. I end up kind of getting fleeting thoughts of them smiling with light around them. That's honestly about the best I can do while I'm sending kind of thoughts towards them. Anyway, I didn't know if that's something that I will get better with with time or if you have any words of wisdom of how I can get better with visualizing um, people as I am sending them thoughts and also how often, you know, meta meditation is part of your daily meditation. Anyway, thanks for everything you do, Dan.
1: Bye. Hi, this is Sharon. Thank you, Tori, for both your questions, actually. In terms of how often to do metta or loving-kindness practice, it's really up to you. When I went to Burma in 1985 to do a three-month intensive retreat in loving-kindness, that began a four-year period where loving-kindness was really my only practice. Uh, Each day when I was sitting, that's what I would do. And Mostly that's not the case for people and not the case for myself either anymore. I would suggest, though, doing it often enough so that you have a sense of confidence and clarity about the practice. And certainly, as you said, in different circumstances, it may be really the practice that you reach for. Often I actually find myself reaching for it when I don't know what else to do in some situation or or connection with somebody. So it's really up to you. and, And I really honor the fact that You're putting some energy into it. And in terms of not being able to visualize, well, actually, honestly, neither can I. It's really an option. It's one way of having the practice come more alive for people because we want concentration and we want a sense of focus, but we also don't want it to be road or mechanical or or to feel dead in some way. And, And so how do we get that sense of offering to kind of pop that sense of there being a being that we are connecting to? to come more alive. And, and for some people, that is really through the process of visualization. Sometimes it's not. I usually try to offer the option of just say that name to yourself, the name of that person or being, if if there's a, a single object, you know, with all beings, sometimes it becomes more of a global sense. Some people do have an image, say, of a planet. Other people, it's almost like this visceral sense. You can just feel this energy or some sense of connection that. Is happening. Some people actually do a kind of travelogue through the world and just get a sense of like, oh, here's um, this country, here's that, here's beings underwater, there's beings in the air, whatever it might be. But but really, uh, I don't think it's a question of somehow getting better at visualization. Um, You might actually find that you are, but it's not really intrinsic to the development of the practice. So I hope that was helpful.
0: All righty, Tori, thank you for that, and uh, appreciate you calling in. And now another one, uh, voicemail number two. This is from Max in Nebraska.
2: My question is with regard to Meta loving-kindness meditation. So um, I have the very, I think, common issue with it, that it feels very artificial, contrived to have this object with a repeated set of phrases that I'm repeating to him or her, um, may you be happy, may you be safe, etc. And that's not to say it doesn't work, that it doesn't get me to feeling that loving kindness. It just has that extra layer of sort of separation due to the artifice there. I find... It' easy to bring up that feeling, that loving kindness, even without that sort of artifice, without having to picture an object, um, without having to repeat these phrases. The feeling just sort of comes up naturally if I'm looking for it. Um, And yet I imagine many people have been able to do that before me and that the um, meta-practice is still nonetheless to think of someone in particular and to send them these sort of directed, intentional thoughts. It's not simply calling up a feeling and resting in that. So I'm wondering what is the particular benefit of having um, that sort of structure to it, having the intentional directed thoughts as opposed to simply resting in the feeling. Um, So any advice you have there would be much appreciated. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Max, for the question. I think it's actually fine to simply rest in the feeling of loving-kindness. One of the reasons that I've appreciated having a structure, and I appreciate also your use of that word, was that, first of all, I find that the sense of loving-kindness may not even be a feeling always. Sometimes it's a worldview. It's, It's a sense of recognition, like, oh, that person has more similarity to me than I ever might have imagined, or sense of inclusion where we used to exclude more readily or, or maybe it's a full sense of connection because we're paying attention to someone we usually ignore, kind of look through. and so we utilize the structure, the phrases or, or the sense of offering of gift giving toward a particular being, very much in the sense of trying to enhance that. But absolutely you can you can rest in the in the feeling if there is one, um, and I would just say maybe now and then experiment with using phrases or or some sense of offering just to see what happens, and especially for those times when the growth or the development and the sense of connection may not be captured by that particular feeling, because it's bigger than that, and it's bigger than we can imagine usually, and there's more to it than that. And also don't be discouraged if that feeling doesn't come sometimes, because That's a perfect place to actually utilize the structure of the practice and see what happens. Max, I hope that was helpful.
0: All righty. Thanks. Big thanks to Sharon for doing that. Uh, Both the interview and the voicemails, which, again, were recorded separately. Also, thanks to Max for calling in. Um, And on this episode 200, I just want to thank – again, I know I do this every week, but here's an extra heartfelt thanks to everybody – I really did not think this this show was going to last this long. I really didn't have much foresight about what this endeavor was going to entail at all when we launched it, uh, but I'm really happy that it exists. I talked about uh, Lauren Efron, who was the founding producer of the show. She's since gone off to do other things within ABC News, but we now have a new and, – and, and so so has Josh Cohan, who is the co-founding producer. Both of them have um, left the nest, but we now have Ryan Kessler, who took over the show many months ago, and has done an incredible job. So Ryan, thanks to you. And we also now have a few folks from 10% Happier, the company, who um, spend a lot of time and and dedicate an enormous amount of energy and thought to this uh, project. And those are Samuel Johns and Grace Livingston. And Grace in particular has uh, organized a group of folks uh, that I mentioned at the top of the show, the podcast Insiders, who you know, whose comments really inform how we do our work. So I want to thank all of you. And and if you're not an insider and you're just a listener, I want to thank you as well, because without you, none of this would be possible. So thank you again. We'll be back with episode 201 next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
4: I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For
3: more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history.